God's relationship with his people is described as a bridegroom to a bride. What kind of bridegroom is, is it? It's a Jewish bridegroom. Okay, so we talk about a bridegroom in Saudi Arabia. And if someone were to say, God's people are like a bride, and God is like the bridegroom, in Saudi Arabia, what does that mean? I mean, it may be really bad things, right? Really. So obviously, the culture informs the language to tell us how that we're supposed to interpret that. Don Richardson, back in the 60s, early 60s, actually it was in the 50s, he went as a missionary to South America. And in the 60s, he wrote a book called uh, Eternity, there in their heart, Eternity in Their Hearts. He also wrote Peace Child. And what he, what, his, what, he, what he observed, working with indigenous people, you see these things. What he observed is there are elements in people's culture that are, seem to have redemptive qualities. I mean, actually explain things, scriptural things, like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have that. We've always believed that. It's like, well, how have you always believed that? I mean, that's, that's the thing is going around to peoples that were, have not been influenced by, you know, really, you know, backwoods people that haven't been influenced by society around them. Their cultures retain because culture is a much better ret, uh, retainer of, of history than history is, right? can go back thousands of years. Why do you do that? I don't know. We just always did it that way. So they go and they say, well, yeah, we understand some of these things because our culture says those things. The problem is, what they took was, Don Richardson's book was really dramatic in, in missionary thinking. Because, and that kind of thinking, uh, Wycliffe uh, is a perfect example, and I think he was a Wycliffe missionary. That kind of thinking, what it did was it is opened the door that what we need to do, and is if, we were going to, if we're going to these places, we need to find out in their culture these elements and draw them out and use that as an explanation for Scripture. Okay? In, in sharing the gospel, the good news. So, and it, and it, was, it was breathtaking, dramatic. Mission organizations across the planet began to use this method called con- contextualization. You take the culture of the, of, the, of the society you're going to and you find the redemptive things within it and then you tailor your message to draw those out as the hook, right? Well, Paul, Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, isn't that what he did? He stands up and he knows that these are philosophers that he's speaking to, right? These are people that appreciate the finer things in life, poetry, literature. And so he draws from Greek poetry, literature, right? He's got the hook. Then he brings up the resurrection. And they drop. Well, many of them do, not all. So, was Paul practicing contextualization? Contextualization, if we left the story there, you might be, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. What a great idea. The problem is that contextualization was so successful in the mission field that people in America began to think, and Great Britain began to think, you know, this works for us too. Let's find the redemptive qualities in the culture around us and we'll use that as a means, as a medium for the message. So now we have what's called postmodern Christianity as a result of contextualization. Basically, they got so watered down that we don't really know what redemptive means anymore because we're so busy trying to allow the culture to inform the message. Does culture inform the message? Yes. What culture? Not American, British, New Zealand, Chinese, Japanese, Mexican, whatever. Not European. The Only the Jewish culture can be used to provide the context. 
So, the customs today, and here's and the reason why, you know, you, you may not realize, you may not realize this, and so I, I wanted to emphasize this at the beginning. I wanted to spend a little time with it. You may not realize how dramatic your thinking is or your approach to Scripture is different from American Christianity on this one premise. Without realizing what's going on, we allow ourselves to filter what comes from the Bible through our culture, our life experience. We always do it. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. So you can go someplace and you can, you can find the best Hebrew scholar at Southwestern Seminary. Pull him out. He can speak it. Biblical Hebrew. Not just Israeli Hebrew. He speaks biblical Hebrew. He knows it insides and out. He's read all the stuff. He knows. He knows these very customs that we're talking about. Oh yeah, no problem. But he doesn't get it. Why? He hasn't changed the way he lives. But well, I mean, he's very familiar with it. It's foreign to his experience. That's the point. In other words, what he's done is he's taken it and he's, he's held it up to his head and it's all in his head and it's not part of his life. Now, this is a constant thing. It's really ironic, ironic, thing, to, ironic thing to me is that American Christianity, actually Western Christianity has enwrapped itself around the notion of if you just make people think the right way, they'll do the right thing. I mean, that's the whole notion. I mean, we're not saying the gospel doesn't, hasn't, doesn't have a life-changing message, but you've got to make sure people continue to think the right way. That's the whole idea of doctrines and creeds. You don't say it, you know? These days especially don't say it. But Instead, Judaism takes the reverse. The Bible takes the reverse. If you'll just make people do the right thing, don't worry about what they're thinking. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Totally different. But the problem with just having knowledge and information, you have the scholar that kind of stuffs it all in here, that's all good. But until he internalizes it here so that he can experience it, it won't ultimately change what he does. So that's why you have a lot of people, and we have to guard that we ourselves become guilty of the same thing where we know a lot of stuff, but it doesn't actually impact our life because, you know, I heard one I heard one rabbi recently say there's a highway. It, it is the heart it is the it's the hardest highway to traverse, and yet it's the shortest highway on the planet. The highway is about thirteen inches from here <laughs> to here. And he said, you know, but getting from here to here mm-hmm. is incredibly difficult. Uh, and it's so true, you can't have just the knowledge. The, ex- the experiential understanding is, is, makes the difference. In fact, it, it, what's, what's ironic to me is if you were to go to the average, um, average Western Christian church and listen to the average sermon, the sermon, you'd come away with probably a, a very good sense that, you know, 
we, we need to, the people in the congregation need to do something, and the guy up there was trying to tell them that they need to do something. It's constantly being motivational to live a certain way, do a certain thing, practical, make it practical to me, which is really ironic because the whole notion of Western Christianity is, it's not about practical, it's about having the right thoughts. So why is the guy standing up there telling you to do the right thing? It's because having the right thoughts doesn't translate into doing the right thing. When I say the right thoughts, I'm not saying not having bad thoughts, good thoughts. I'm talking about having correct thoughts. All of my, all of my, my corners are nice and square. I know exactly how God fits inside this box. My theology is perfect according to Scripture. And if I have that, I can rest assured my actions will be the same way. Uh, Stephen Covey, from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, speaks to this also in his concept of the PPC, when you've got production versus production capability. You know, on the one hand, you've got a machine that if you're not maintaining it, but it's just working and working and working and working, it will eventually break down. That's your production. Your production capability is like some of the people who fall into the perpetual student syndrome and mm. just stay in college, you know, learning and learning and learning and learning, but never applying. Sure. And so there has to be a balance between the two. What's, what's interesting about the, the Jewish lifestyle, as it's described in Scripture, is that it's 100%. If you read the Torah, nowhere in the Torah does it say, and you must say these things and do these and think this way. Never. It says, do this, do this, do this. And it kind of leaves the thought thing completely up to you. But the, I was just wondering about like the, your heart is far from me type mm-hmm. passages in the prophets. Where does that fit? You tell me. Well, <laughs> well, because it sounded like the Western thought is all about thinking and then the it is. Jewish side is all about doing. But it's not always all about doing. And that's one of the things that's really ironic is when you take that same average conservative orthodox shul and the rabbi is going to give a drosh. Maybe it's not on Sunday morning or Shabbat morning, but it's a drosh. Is he telling people about... Oftentimes he's explaining the, di- the depth of the things that people are doing. It's kind of like the reverse, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. It's like, wow, well, that's kind of cool, so that's why I do it. <laughs> you know? No, no, actually, you tell me. Scripture tells us that what's in the heart will come out. So, does it matter what's in my heart? Yes. It will come out. In other words, I can't, it's impossible for me to live a life that's pleasing to God in what I do and not have a heart that's after Him. And then you... can comprehend it, but you don't really but know. But the experience, it's like it doesn't actually sink in somehow. There's a difference between knowing and understanding. And that actually is also true even, like, I think Solomon is a really good example of someone even whose knowledge becomes, um, 
is so totally detached even to certain degree from understanding. He understood everything and he had immense wisdom. Worked against them. But he actually uses his wisdom to justify actions that violate the explicit that's right. commandments of Scripture. Yeah, that's right. So you can, it's like if you don't, <laughs> I think that while I, I, I see the importance of what you believe per se, the if it's not translated into action that is demonstrated that it's not really what you believe right. And, and that, that was my point with, with Peter. This is not to minimize beliefs. It's, we're not talking about beliefs. What we're talking about is, I don't really know my own beliefs. I certainly can't know yours. And anybody that stands up and says, yes, we all believe the same, is lying. <laughs> so why are we playing this game? When in fact, if we live the way that we're supposed to live, the culture that we live in, our experience, brings the scripture alive and makes it, especially for children. I mean, it's like children, they're going to be going, well, yeah, we've always done that. I didn't know why we do that. <laughs> That's why we do that. Whoa. I mean, just a, a practical example, you know, in our community is you can, you can read about Shabbat, you can understand Shabbat, but you don't really know Shabbat until, you, yep. until you, you know, until you're running around you know, on Friday. <laughs> That's right. See, the writer of Hebrews knows this. He writes that way, and everybody else misses it because they don't know what it's like. Right. So until you actually go through that and experience it, and not just experience it once, but experience it as a life habit. That's right. Absolutely true statement. Absolutely true statement. Yep. So, the reason I'm spending a little time on this is I'm going to come. Yeah. You and then you. No, my, my thing, real quickly, is that based on what you said, it, it's kind of bringing back to me because I may be the, the, the closest one that's been through church, you know, the, the most recent one, maybe, but um, it's all these marriage classes, child rearing classes how college students should act. It's it's always just one after another, and it's almost like it, it makes you feel good, and then it's whatever, and then it makes you feel good, and it's whatever, versus shouldn't there just be one lesson on marriage and one lesson on childbirth? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not saying all those classes are bad, but it's just they're continuously going on and on right. and on. Well, it's, it's, like, it's like constantly trying to regain the camp experience. Yeah. You know, somehow if I can get that spiritual high again, somehow that'll carry me through. And actually, not only is that bad, not only is that wrong, it's incorrect, it's actually detrimental to your spiritual growth. To think that you need a spiritual high. No, what you need to do is you need to do the same thing every day. You know, you need to follow God in the same way every day. If you'll be consistent, you don't need a high, you just need a steady walk. Um, just trying to gather the data here, because I've wrestled with this question a lot, especially going through a Protestant seminary where it's very much believe X and you're good. Um, so are we saying that there's a kind of a, a circle where both influence one another, where beliefs influence um, actions and actions influence beliefs? Or would you say that perhaps it's more so the fact that what you actually are doing is going to 
affect your thinking? In other words, is it equal where the thoughts influence the heart or the actions and the actions influence the heart? Actually, I would say the heart influences our actions more, more? than anything else. Okay. The problem is that when the emphasis, when I can't know my own heart, which is, by the way, that's biblical, how do I change it? Well, the premise that Protestant Christianity is given is, well, God will change it. It'll be automatic. Right. I think I think history is pretty clear. That's not true. God does give us a new heart. He will give us a new heart. But we're in process now, and it is an automatic. So what can I do? And what I can do is do the things he's told me to do and count on him then to do what I can't do, which is to know and change my own mind. I can't know my own mind. That's exactly right. Right. So, as I was talking with Ken, we were talking about the possibility that it may not be instantaneous like that, that instead it's a process and that the new birth experience is something that happens over time. So, whatever begins once you're immersed in the name of Yeshua is the gestation period. And then when he comes again in this corruptible body puts on incorruption and we are made like him, that's the new birth. And it was just a... I, you know, I, 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 I tend towards... I tend towards not trying to find a point in time right. when... And the reason why is because if, if I read Scripture correctly, it's, it was, there wasn't a point in time, in my time, that I can point to and say... That's when I somehow step from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but rather that my sins were forgiven from the foundation of the world. That's pretty profound. If we, uh, if we read in the scriptures that we should not eat certain things, this is an abomination to God. We should not eat it. And we're obedient. And we stop eating that. I'm reminded of, of years ago when I confessed to many that I I really enjoy <laughs> pork, especially bacon. <laughs> I mean, I like the smell, and I really enjoy it, you know. And uh, uh, a man a man shouted out from the group and said, "You don't like it." It's an abomination to God. And I thought, well, I should disagree with you. <laughs> but over time, I don't like it. Your tastes change. My tastes have changed. That's right. And now when I smell it, it is more nauseating. Yeah, it's a mouse. It's a man. And, and it was simply the culture that had me. We we are des- uh, the culture has desensitized us to the word of God, and the word of God we may we may still get pieces of it, but we are desensitized until we start obeying Him. Then within that language and culture, now the reason that I'm going through all of this 
is because one of my premise points here is we, Jewish wedding customs today are similar elements to those in ancient times. Cultural traditions, unlike simple history, transmit truth across many generations. All true. We're all going, okay, well, that sounds good. I mean, we can we could probably agree to that. But not maybe this one. It says, Every, even where modern traditions differ, differ, no other culture has the right to inform our understanding of Scripture. The right to inform our Think about this for a second. This is why I'm saying maybe, maybe this doesn't cause you any problems. And if it doesn't, then, you're, then your perception of Scripture is dramatically different from the vast majority of believers. Because although you may believe that Scripture is inspired, written down, unchanging, if you believe that statement, then you also believe that God has somehow given the scriptures to a people and a culture to tell us what it means. So that says, and that changes. So that says no other culture other than the Jewish culture. No other culture, yeah, I'm sorry, the Jewish wedding right customer. No other culture other than the Jewish culture has a right to inform. Absolutely. But sure. It's, it's never okay to distinguish anything that, that goes against Israel. I agree. Absolutely. It would be like me going to Shanghai and, you know, and living in a community of, you know, native Chinese and me trying to tell them, oh no, this is what your culture is. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what's happened for two millennia. Gentile Christians have pointed their fingers at Jews and say, you guys don't really get it. I mean, come on. You're so blinded. We pray for you. You're so blind. You're Christ killers, but we love you. Yes, right. We love you, but you're blind. And we have allowed, we have allowed our understanding of Scripture, and I'm speaking in a, in a Western Christianity sense, to tell them that they don't understand their own culture. It is. Remember, the Bible is not just words. It's expression of a culture. And it's not just any culture. It's the culture that God gave to a people to live. It's true. We're not talking about Jews that worshipped idols. We're talking about the Jews that worshipped the one true God. Of course that's the right culture, right? So who has the right to tell us what the meaning of these words are? Only the culture that owns that. Which is what Paul's point was when he said that it was very good to be a Jew because to them are entrusted the oracles of God. He, by the way, and that is not a past tense phrase when he says it.
posit that's like a wish of something good, and that actually has power, as opposed to a culture here, or like another example is in Hebrew, when you wish someone success, you say, in success. It's, again, it's speaking something positive into their life, as opposed to saying, good luck. But again, if I tell someone, if they say, you know, I've got a test on Tuesday, well, in success, they'll look at me like cross-eyed. <laughs> so I translated it exactly from the Hebrew to the English, but it's the divorce of the culture, it means nothing. That's right. That's right. There was another hand over here. I was going to say I like where you're going with that, but my difficulty comes when you start talking about Messiah and the the ones who apparently have the right to inform us of this understanding of Scripture. This culture is not only so far removed from the culture of, Mes- of the days of Messiah and the uh, apostles and everything like that. They're not even, you know, preaching the gospel as it were. I understand. In, I understand. And there's got to be a reconciliation there. Remember the box? I'm saying, get rid of the box. It's not nice, neat. There are no square corners. No, I'm cool with that. No, no, but that's that's my point, though. That's exactly my point. It's like, see, what we do is we say, okay, I'm only going to listen to these people as long as they can fit everything in the box that my box has. Instead of recognizing, no, 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 this is a people, a unique people that God stepped out of eternity into this place, the only time in history to speak to a people, these people he gave this to. You know, I'm going to give them a little break on trying to fit it in the box. Now, I agree that I'm not going to say everything they say. In my box, that's it's my box. Now, I don't disagree that my box and your box may be the same one in describing Messiah. But I'm going to give them a break when it talks about trying to fit everything inside my box. I think I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in the last two years you know, around this. And we dance around it a lot. And I haven't got it all figured out. But one thing I believe to be true is that there is nothing that you and I know that has not been informed to us by anybody other than than Jews. It's true. Even if modern orthodoxy has reinterpreted some of their own understanding for various and sundry reasons, their own culture going back informs every understanding we have about Messiah Yeshua to this very day. So every... Christian and Western Christianity owes all of their 100% of their understanding of Messiah to Jews and only Jews. Is that not why Paul took up an offering for those in Jerusalem? Absolutely. Because they were the ones you owe it. through whom Messiah came? Absolutely. And not just through whom they came. He, remember, he's their, he's their brother. You know, this is the one thing that really astounds me. You talk about Moses last Shabbat. It's like, it sounds like people diss Moses. Anti-Semitism? You, you, you're taking on the brothers of the king of the universe. That's not a good thing. It just isn't. It can't be positive. You may come up with all sorts of explanations, and it may be a good explanation, like they don't fit in my theological box, but it just doesn't count. 
And I believe that's exactly what Matthew 25 is talking about. It's that when he talks about these my brothers that you did unto them as you did unto me. That's exactly, because in the Jewish understanding, that's exactly what it's like. Hey, you touch, you touch my brothers, you've touched me. Yes. As the Messiah. Absolutely. And it's right there in their own right. Absolutely. You don't have to come up with fancy, cool words to try and slick it past the Orthodox Jew. We don't no. have to go to the apostolic writings. We don't even have to touch the apostolic writings. We can go to the, the old, the Tanakh, and their sages. Actually, you have to go to their sages because the Tanakh doesn't say it as clearly. That's exactly right. And it's a remarkable thing. When you read what the sages say about Messiah, you'd say, where'd they get that? I, I read it, and I wouldn't get it. Now, I know in the reverse, I could look back and go, okay, that's what it's talking about, but where'd they get that? Because they certainly didn't get it from Christians. So, we're, so there's my, my question is, actually, here's my question. Where'd the Christians get it from? <laughs> from the Jews. That's right. Absolutely. But, but I think if I remember correctly, and I could have been, I may have been slightly off here, so forgive me because I don't, I don't think I saw it in Hebrew. But the breakdown in English made it almost look like um, it was not, it was actually, no, yeah, that's right. The gender, it may not be the name of Yeshua, because I don't know if Yeshua's name may have been male, I would presume it would have been. And salvation is usually feminine. It is feminine. As a noun. But in this particular like phrase, it was not Yeshua T. Yeshua Toh, all the little endings that indicate his salvation, my salvation, it was just salvation. So in the, the phrase, as it were, was, I have waited for salvation. Yes, sure. mm-hmm. was the thing that was supposed to be like the declaration of faith, as it were, in the funding of the world's come. This is coming from the sages. Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, we're, I mean, it's like not even like a step. That's like, like it's right there. Like your nut, your toes are on the line, I and mean, we change like you know one little letter from feminine to masculine, you have the whole piece right there. Well, the second, the fourteenth blessings in the Amidah also it's almost like you're calling Yeshua. Of course, absolutely, absolutely. His name is actually through all the Amidah. The reason I'm spending some time on this is because my premise in this study, and hopefully you'll begin to see this, is that it's not just we can't just go back and say, okay, what were the customs in the first century and before? That be that would be that would be cheating, because we're going to borrow from a people as long as we can skip all the current ones. That's cheating. Because they're still the people of God. So if we're going to say the culture of the Bible informs our understanding of Scripture and our understanding of God, then we have to say it's not static. No culture is. That may be a leap for you. And I'm encouraging you to wait it out, sniff it a little bit like brandy and or a good wine taste a little bit and decide whether you think it's healthy or not 
palatable. I'm not asking you to think inside my box. I'm asking you to consider how living might, in a way consistent with what we're going to teach here, might actually give me a better understanding of Scripture. That's right, me too. Because I see where they can inform my understanding Absolutely. of Messiah Yeshua. Because I understand that regardless of the, the different theological constructs and boxes and systematic approaches, they, they determine the uh, their culture determines Absolutely. So, so whether I agree on a specific point with them or not is not. It's immaterial. It's immaterial relative to being able to glean from their understanding in totality. Says Deuteronomy four one says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the words that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you. And then uh, going down to verse uh, verse six, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who are the peoples? That's right. Not Jews. That's right. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? I'm sorry. When you talk about contextualization, there's only one context. You have to teach the people to live like Jews. Because then, the people around them will say, what great God is this? That has given such wise life to these people. Their culture defines the corners of That's right. It has to. Now, I don't want to make people sit inside the box. I just want them to understand, don't make that box one that Jews can't fit into. And that's what a lot of Messianics do. They'll go, you know, I just don't like the rabbis. If I could just live like Yeshua lived and his disciples. Without the rabbis. rabbis. It's like, are you so historically stupid? It's like you've got to be historically ignorant to, to believe that. That somehow, automatically, when Yeshua showed up, suddenly, everything from then on got bogus. And if anybody has studied the rabbis, you know that actually the foundations were being laid for three, four hundred years prior to that. So rabbinic Judaism is built upon the foundation of the people that were living before Yeshua's time. You know, I've been thinking about this uh, situation an awful lot lately, you know, as far as what you had just said, Brother Rick, about Messianics not wanting to look to the rabbis because they, of course, deny Yeshua, but they want to live like Yeshua and his apostles. And, you know, just kind of seeing how that puts Messianics in a very 
unsure area because they can't look to Christianity because, especially Western Christianity, because it's the wrong culture. So, you know, it's like, where do we look in order to get an idea of how it's like it's like his idea where you're going to go to Shanghai then and explain to him. And this is what a lot of Messianics are doing. They're basically telling, no, 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 you people in, in, in Shanghai don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to tell you what Chinese is all about. <laughs> That's what they're doing. They're saying, no, no, we know what it's really all about. You guys have hidden this. We could tell. <laughs> Hebrew bent. They're Hebrew Christians. So it's not Judaism. And they still interpret and approach the scripture from a Protestant Western Christian. It's got to fit in the box. My box. It's all got to fit in the box. That's the truth. With 90, I mean, obviously I'm disappointing statistics out of the other South. 90% of the Jewish congregations, I agree with that, yeah. All right, we've laid the foundation, so let's move on, and let's, let's just see, take a sniff, taste it, if maybe this doesn't have some bearing. This lesson we're going to look at, and that only took 30 minutes, uh, this lesson we're going to look at, first part of the wedding ritual, which is Kiddushin, and it is an Aramaic word. <laughs> marriage, the marriage ritual is in two parts, okay? I want you to always remember. Marriage ritual is two parts. Has been, always will be. And the Bible recognizes this. Jewish custom today, it's still two parts, even though it seems to all be one part. Kiddushin, it's also called uh, Irusin, both Aramaic words, and Nisuin. Nisuin. Tatui, yeah. Uh, so, Deuteronomy 22.13 says, traditional Judaism says that the marriage ceremony, the ritual that we go through, was commanded, as we saw in Mishnah Torah, Rambam's Mishnah Torah, was commanded at Sinai. Prior to that, there was no commandment in how you were to go about to take a wife. Okay? But the, the two parts are commanded. They codify actually three things that took place and have always taken place. Three stages. For instance, we see Isaac took Rebekah to his mother's tent, a physical transfer. These two parts of the ritual take into account these three things. A transfer, he took her, the marriage rite itself, and she became his wife. Consummation, physical relations. Those, those three uh, phases, as it were, are being expressed in the two parts of the marriage ritual. Uh, yes, Kiddushin, although it's Aramaic, has the same root as the Hebrew uh, Kadosh, which is holy. It means the bride is set apart. Actually, let me re- be, be real clear, and hopefully you've already know this, but if you don't, then may- maybe this will set it. In a Jewish wedding, the bride is not on a pedestal, and she's not the center of attention. It's really remarkable to me when I go to a Christian wedding that they don't get this. It's like, you claim to have it all about Messiah, but you're missing the point. Because it's not about the bride. It's about the bridegroom. 
Now, don't misunderstand. It's not misogynistic. We're not trying to diss women. And actually, this ceremony doesn't either. But what it does is it sets it correctly. Here's the way it is. The woman has to agree, obviously, right? The bride is set apart. Although they're both set apart for one another, specifically in Kiddushin, it is the bride that's set apart for the husband. It's very important you understand this. If you're going to understand how that applies to our way we read Scripture. Okay? No physical contact between bride and bridegroom is permitted. Today, in modern Orthodox or Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, if a couple are set apart for one another, right? If they're betrothed, there's very strict, actually strict guidelines anywhere for anybody, but how you're allowed to be in the company of a, someone from the other gender that's not your sister, brother, or parent is extremely strict. You're never allowed to be in the same room. Never with someone from the other gender. Unless your wife's there, or husband's there, or a father or mother, right? They're the only ones of the other gender that you're allowed to be with. Alone, alone. I'm sorry, alone, thank you. I don't mean to to back up and to to lose your your rhythm. I just want to make it clear, for those of you who don't know, um, this, this whole beginning concept, the previous point, that the focus is on the bride. I think I'm, you know, top shelf so far as as, as far as the guy who's gone through this more. you got three daughters that have done this, yeah. Three times in three years, and I have been privileged to be invited to several others, and hopefully, I haven't got Many more. an invitation yet, but, you know, there's, I know there's some coming up. Um... That is the number one Christian response to the wedding, to the weddings that we've seen. It's her. It's her. It's her time. That, wow, the, the focus on the on the bridegroom rather than on the bride is so different, and it seems so special. Yeah. So you turn around and go, well, it's so. Biblical. <laughs> so, so tell me in Revelation. That's right. So, tell me in Revelation, Revelation nineteen again. What's the marriage supper there? What's it describe as the wedding of the the marriage of the whom? Not the bride. Not the bride. <laughs> yeah. I went to a couple of B flat weddings. B flat. <laughs> I love those. Actually, every wedding's a good wedding. Weddings, when I first saw them, it, it's so true, it almost makes you uncomfortable. Um, but it was, it was really, really neat to kind of get the Jewish perspective and sure. go back to the kind of. We're not, and we're not trying to say right, wrong. What we're trying to do is what teaches us best. Why does God use bridegroom as a descriptive of himself? What I was going to say um, before that was um, talking about the separation. Because Joseph said it in the family purity class that Mr. Uppen right. about if we're not married, you know, those of us who aren't married, we should, it's the same exact laws. Exactly the same. Until you get married, then, because we shouldn't be alone or like alone physically contacting anyone. That's right. Until you're married. No physical contact. That's why, that's why shaking hands, nice Western, nice Western 
cultural thing that I do, although if I have to tell you deeply, deep down inside, I'm not a handshaker, but I'll shake your hand anytime. Really? Not a hugger? I'm not a hugger. inaugurates a legal marriage. Kiddushin inaugurates a legal marriage. Anybody that's read the Bible hopefully has got a concept of, yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. It's a legal marriage. They're technically married. Uh, If the wedding is terminated, it requires a get, a legal divorce. Okay? If either are sexually unfaithful during Kiddushin, it's adultery. Stoning. We're going to see here in a second, it's way before the actual ceremony in ancient times. In ancient times, Kiddushin was separated from the Nisuin by a long period of time, usually a year or longer. Especially if there were families, there were arranged marriages. And if if you're not familiar with arranged marriages, they're actually very, very cool. But the arranged marriage, they may go on for a decade or longer. <laughs> that we, we make clear that what your last point there is described in the opening chapters. Yeah, of that's right. Luke. You know, if we look at the master's exactly right. That's what they. Were that's what's going on. In fact, we're going to get to it because we're going to pull out the scriptures. Yes. So the ketubah. What's a ketubah? It's a contract. It means literally a writing, right? It it it, it initiates the. The Kiddushin. That's what starts it. Okay? I think it was shamed to say this, but just so there might be another noob in the group. I have actually been reading the Talmud with you for years, and now with you. I had no idea. Ketubot. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff in the Talmud on Kiddushin, on Ketubot. This is. This is a big topic. It's huge. It so, if we were going to read about a bridegroom in the Bible, who could describe it best for us than the people that have folios and folios and folios describing it? People going, oh, don't want to get near that towel thing. <laughs> you have no idea what you're missing out on. <laughs> so, a ketubah means a written document. It's the one way. It's, the, it's a one-way legal trans... It's a great thing. There's modern ketubot sometimes, especially in reform. They'll have both the bride and the bridegroom sign. But that's not what ketubot are about. Ketubot is about the bridegroom signing in, by witness. It is a one-way contract. No, no, here's the most recent man over here, yes. And actually, I have his, I have his ketubah I'm going to read here momentarily. Correct here, say that technically I did not sign my Orthodox are supposed to be my words. That's right. It's not a written contract that someone else wrote for me. Well, when I read it, you'll see it says, he said. It's me assenting to the idea that this is my personal commitment. Exactly. The witnesses sign verifying that I have taken You're the guy. on myself. Yep. But it's all me. That's right. Ryan? <laughs> so, as we've seen, there are usually two witnesses, right? Uh-huh. Well... There are always two witnesses, yes? I'm I'm thinking of this in terms of, you know, what Yochanan Hamid Beal said, that he's the friend of the bride. That's right. And Eliyahu Hanavi would be the other one. 
the friend group. Yes, very good. Yeah. You speak in the language, man. That's right. You're speaking the language. So the ketubah describes the bridegroom's responsibility towards his bride, signed in the presence of two witnesses. If she agrees, the ketubah becomes a legal possession of the bride in the case of her husband's death or their divorce. In ancient times, the ketubah ceremony took place in the parents. So here's what happened. It's like, okay, this is it. It's the day to do the ketubah. So everybody follows the bridegroom where? To the bride's domain. Very important. So the, the way that the marriage relationship begins is by the bridegroom going to the bride's domain. It's where her parents care for her or her caretakers care for her. It's very important that they have to go to her house. Okay, it would be totally backwards and it does happen because we know in scripture it's happened but it's because there was no other way a perfect example would be Ruth and Boaz okay? but otherwise I would imagine in that regard it probably went to Naomi's house but the point is the ceremony begins with the ketubah being carried unsigned to the home of the bride her domain and he gives her something of value. In addition to the ketubah, he gives her something of value, a keepsake. We're going to see that in Scripture this has actually been borne out many times. The tradition of a ring in Western weddings is a very good tradition. It doesn't have to be a ring, though. A ring is fine, and that's actually sometimes what it is, a ring. But it's something of value. Okay. So where does... Actually, I've got to read this ketubah real quick because it's uh, actually pretty cool. If you didn't have a chance to hear it before, this is your chance. Uh, this is actually from Isaacs, but I won't fill in the blanks. On the blank day of the week, the blank day of the month in, of blank, in the year blank, as we reckon time here in blank, son of blank said to the bride, this is what Joshua's point, this is actually his statement to the bride, <laughs> said, said to the bride, the maiden, daughter of blank, be my wife according to the statutes of Moses in Israel. What's he saying? Deuteronomy is what he's talking about. Okay? And I will work for esteem, feed, and support you, as is the custom of Jewish men who work for, for esteem, feed, and support their wives faithfully. And I will give you a virgin's price, and I will provide you food and clothing and necessities and your conjugal rights according to the accepted custom. So the bridegroom is making a promise to the bride to do what? To provide for her. What's her response? There's only two responses. Yes or no? If she says yes, what's she got to do for him? Nothing. Not here. Not here. Nothing. Zero. If she says no, huh? It's an unconditional. Well, it's not unconditional because she accepts it. But if she accepts it's an un- It's unilateral. The bridegroom gives it to the bride with no, with no strings attached. None. Zero. That is not the way American weddings work, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. This is a pretty cool picture. All right. We're going to see why it's a cool picture when we look at the Torah. 
The Talmud treats the giving of the Torah of Moses as Sinai, as a speaking the ceremonial signing of the Ketubah. Okay? So, the bridegroom left his domain and came to the domain of the bride with a document that to be signed in the presence of how many witnesses? Two witnesses. What's the bride's response? Yes or no? That's it. And that's exactly what the, the bride did. All that you have said, we will do. By the way, was that, a, was, that a, was that now conditional? No, it was not. She agreed. That was it. The bridegroom's promise is still valid. I promise. That's the cool thing about Ketubah. As long as she says yes, the bridegroom's promise is still valid. It's not conditional. I was taught by a really good Bible teacher that Israel was foolish to say yes before they knew what it was. I say no. Because any bride can see the bridegroom coming and is going to know, is this guy a good guy or not? I mean, he's coming with chariots of fire. I mean, he's coming in the clouds of glory. This guy can keep his word. This guy's coming in a Rolls Royce to my house. I don't need to worry about whether he's going to be able to provide for me. You understand? She sees the bridegroom and doesn't need to hesitate at all. I don't need to know what the stipulations are. Yes. That's what Israel did. That's pretty cool. That is awesome. I mean, that is like, that, that, is, that is, in the purest sense, there is no faith higher than that faith right there. Where they said, all that you have said, we will do. Unseen. Why, why, when God hearkens to Israel's greatest moment of faithfulness, He points to the wilderness. That's right. There you, there we were lovers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Genesis twenty-four forty-five through sixty-one. This is uh, um, actually we don't need to read the whole thing. We don't have time to read the whole thing. So let me uh, let me read. This is Eliezer. Somebody tell me the story real quickly. What happens? Where does Eliezer go? To the bride's domain. Goes to the bride's domain. Right? And what does he offer? Gifts. I have... No he is the... He is the legal... In this case, out of necessity, he's the legal representative. He's the agent. It's as if the bridegroom's there. So he offers her... He offers her... Jewelry all the stuff. Gold yeah. and garments. Okay? What, and she's given a choice. Laban asks, what do you say? And she says, yes, I'll go with this man. Right? So, uh, we see gifts are given. The domain, all of that's there. Okay? What's really cool is when, when she gets on the camel and rides back with Eliezer, and she sees Isaac, then she's impressed. Right? Up until that point, she's like, well, this can't be bad. It's like the Rolls Royce showing up at your door, right? Okay, well, the guy's got the money to take care of me anyway, right? That's right. Okay, in, in, in Deuteronomy twenty-four sixty-two to sixty-seven, if you did your homework, this was this was a reference when Rebecca shows up, right? And Isaac, it says, took her into his. We looked at it all. Took her into his mother's tent, and she became his wife. That's that transfer of domain. Okay, you're in my spot now. You came to me now. Okay? That's why the hoopah is an important picture we'll see next week, or three weeks. 
months from now. <laughs> uh, exclusively, an object as uh, an object's the witness. Exclusivity, an object's the witness. This is Deuteronomy 31 was uh, um, Genesis 31. Excuse me, if I can get to it here. Genesis 31 was when Laban chases after Jacob, and he says, "This pile of rocks will be a witness." Right, an object becomes a witness. So what's the object of a witness in a Jewish wedding? There's an object that's a witness. The ketubah is the witness. That's right. And it represents God. That's really cool. Think about it. So, Sinai is a ketubah. So when we parade the Torah in service, and we say it represents the living Torah, right? This is exactly this concept. The object becomes a stand-in for God. Okay? Not idolatry. We don't worship the object. The bride does not worship the ketubah. The ketubah is a representation of her husband's commitment to her. Exodus 19. And these are, this is actually the, the giving of the, the Torah. Exodus 19. The promises. He makes promises. You will be my treasured people. Right? Remember, a ketubah is a one-way agreement that if the bride accepts the offer, cannot be withdrawn without a legal divorce. She agrees. So, she agrees. The ketubah is now signed in the presence of witnesses and who becomes that? And now she is being set apart, Kiddushin. She's set apart. She's special. She's holy. She's sanctified. She only belongs to him. And she's legally married. She's married. No wonder God, I mean, we can't imagine, not to put ourselves in that thinking, but we can't even imagine how it must affect God that Israel went after other gods. Kiddushin. They're married. Yes, he has. Does he have two wives? <laughs> Judah and... <laughs> You're gonna say something? No. Matthew one eighteen. Okay, let's let's look this one up because this is this was uh, this is actually uh, what Joseph was talking about, where we actually read all of this stuff going on. Oh, I skipped Ruth. Disregard. Go down to Ruth first. Uh, we saw it in, with Ruth. Ruth. We also see witnesses. We see this. Uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Floney out. Floney out. Judah loves that. He uses that for everything. <laughs> so, so just so and so, right? And and the trans and the and the like. The giving me here's your shoe. <laughs> Take my shoe. Uh, the transfer, the physical transfer, marriage right, the consummation. Exodus. We talked about that already. Ex- and Matthew one uh, eighteen through fit twenty five. Now the birth of Messiah Yeshua took place in this way. When his mother Miriam had been betrothed to Yosef, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Yosef, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? As opposed to? Because if he would have done it publicly, she could have That's right. It's never been evidence of that it ever happened, but it could have happened. He'd have to have a divorce. It'd have to be public. That's right. And all it takes is his word. Look, I wasn't with her. You know we're not supposed to be alone together. Right? 
but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Miriam as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke to the uh, spoke by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Yosef woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Yeshua. When did they get married? They were already married. <laughs> that is a trick question. They are already married. So, it's an interesting question for you. Whose father is Yeshua? Legally? Legally. Joseph. Joseph, period. He is. He is the son of Joseph. And the scripture never violates that and never calls him his stepfather. No. Is Joseph is father. not Yeshua's stepfather. He's his father legally. That doesn't preclude who his heavenly father was. It just simply says he is his legal father, period. Which is an important point. Don't you think? He's supposed to be of the line of David. Don't play games with Miriam's line. <laughs> Matthew doesn't. I think it's a pun, too. It is a God pun, yeah. <laughs> it is. Okay, betrothed of God. What state is the relationship between God and Israel? Is it marriage? Yes. Absolutely. Does it look like Nisuin or Kiddushin? How? Why? Because Israel has been set apart and is different than everybody else. But we're still not living so there's been no transfer of uh, physical transfer into the domain of the bridegroom. But that is absolutely necessary. You've already seen it. It's absolutely necessary to know there's two parts to a Jewish wedding. Israel is in Kiddushin. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their, their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say... Each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The ketubah is, is intact. Do you understand? That's what's being said here. We use this phrase and we say, Well, the Torah, it's the same Torah, it's just a different writing material. Before it was written on, on stone, now it's written on our hearts. And that's all true. The mediums change, but it's the same Torah, the same words being given. But the point is, it's the ketubah. It's the same ketubah. It's exactly the same ketubah. So it's still intact. There's no, there's no been withdrawal, no matter what, ref, what 
uh, Reformed Presbyterians say. In fact, when you're talking about the fact that it's a new covenant, the covenant element of that phrase is the It's not, it's right, it's not the ketubah. In other words, it's not the covenant's a, not the ketubah. There's not a new Torah. There's a new agreement with the same Torah as a centerpiece. Bingo. So, in the language of the bridegroom, it's the same ketubah. The ketubah's unchanged. That's, that's, that's still there. The ketubah's unchanged. What's, what is this? Okay, before we were saying we are going to get married, you've been unfaithful to me. <laughs> you have. So, I know I said that I would come back on, at a certain point, that's still going to happen. But I'm going to tell you what happens when I come back this, now. When I come back, this is going to be a really big deal. You are going to be the wife that you think that you want to be. You are going to be the perfect wife. I'm going to make sure of it. That's the new deal. Before, I was going to say, you're my wife, you're my treasured people. Now I'm saying, you're not just going to be my wife and the treasured people. You're going to be the perfect wife. I'll make sure of it. This is not a, okay, now let's rethink this. This is a, obviously, you weren't up to the task. (laughs) So I'm going to make sure that this will be perfect. When we have consummation, when we enter a life together, it will be perfect. That's pretty cool. Hosea 2. <clears throat> Hopefully you all know this one. He shall pursue, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished her with silver and gold. Remember his responsibility to the, to the ketubah? It was his responsibility to provide for her. She left her parents home. It's his responsibility to provide for her. Therefore I will take my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take my wool and my flax which were, which were to cover her nakedness. Uh, oh, now I will uncover her lewdness at the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I shall put an end to her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and her appointed feasts, and I will lay her vast, her vines, and her victories, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. It's all bad stuff. He's taking it all away. This is, I guess, as far as many people want to read that are of replacement theology. Until you get down to 14. verse uh, 14. Yes, oh, Pita Tikva. And I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Akor a door of hope. Pita Tikva. That's actually a town in the land of Israel right near the airport called Pita Tikva, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me Ishi, my husband. And no longer call me Ba'ali, my master. It's a play on words because Ba'al. You know, there's nothing wrong with a a, a woman calling her husband Ba'al, Lord. It's not Baal. He's doing a play on words. I'm going to be your man. Ishi. Do you understand? Ishi, not Ba'al or Ba'ali. 
For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me with righteousness and justice, with steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will, de- I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall... S- That's two witnesses. And the earth shall s- answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. They shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy. And I will have mercy on no mercy. Which earlier in the book, one of the children is named No Mercy. And I will say of a people that are not my people... Loami, another one of these poor little children. <laughs> you are my people. And you'll say you are my God. So, Hosea 2, 7 through 23, affirms the ketubah. It reestablishes Kiddushin. Reestablish. She's definitely not been set apart. But reestablishes Kiddushin. And promises a future, future Nisuin. So, in summary. Only took an hour, two hours. We're learning information about our relationship with the Lord through the prism of the wedding, the Jewish wedding, but information is really not sufficient. You don't have to get married to have the experience, although that's good, but it demands more than information. So if we only just care about information, that's all we're ever really going to do. I promise it's almost impossible for you to change your mind. You have to change what you do. And we're still waiting for the second part of the wedding, which you said months from now. <laughs> now we got, we're, we're going to go to the second part. The second part is actually in two part, two lessons in, in, on, uh, in the book. Questions? Thanks for participating. It is. Hosea was specifically prophesying to the northern. Yes. Which scripture says God actually gave her a get? Yes. So how does how does that uh, lay into this um, where we see that Hashem actually gave a get to the to the Lord because they were playing the harlot with all the false gods and refused to repent after Hosea and other prophets were sent? Um, so the marriage contract, in that sense, was legally annulled. I agree. Yet we know these one-way promises still stand. Well, we know it because specifically mentioned, the northern kingdom is speci- specifically mentioned in, in, in Jeremiah 31, and also in, in uh, um, Ezekiel 36 and 37. So we know that in, in, in the language of the culture, a get was given, legally served, and a promise to reestablish the ketubah and the kid and a time a period of kiddushin. I'd say it applies to both the Judah and Israel. But that I mean, in the language of the culture, that's what would ha- that's what happened. That's the problem is, and it, as you as you brought up, supersessionist theology says, okay. Jews are no longer in this box anymore because, I'm sorry, you got divorced from God. And what they don't recognize is, yeah, you didn't read far enough because it's in the same passage. He reestablishes the ketubah 
and Kiddushin and promises a consummation. Yeah. The old one is broken. Not not the old one's broken in the sense that in, in the sense that it's it's insufficient, but the sense that it was annulled to a degree by God, and so we are reestablishing the same similar but enhanced terms under a new covenant, but it's the same bride bride and it's the same bridegroom. Again, it, it's same bridegroom. And the promises are are equal but better. It's like it's not like God says, "Well, I was going to give you all this stuff. Now I'm holding some back." It's more like I'm giving you all this plus more. But it, in other words, it's, so it is a, a um, improved version of the covenant before, but the same ketubah, the same Torah is being re-given. If you want to look at if you want to look at the term covenant being used there, it's the it's the, well. First of all, how does that how does the bridegroom know to walk over and give this bride his ketubah. There's got to be some discussion, right? It's in the same in the same terms, that's like the that'd be like the covenant. This is our agreement. We don't have a legal agreement yet, but I'm going to come and I'm going to make this legal formal agreement with you. And that's that's what I would liken the covenant versus new covenant to, not a change of ketubah, the same ketubah, same parties, but in, instead it's the ketubah with okay, I didn't give you enough obviously last time, so I'm going to heap it on you now. <laughs> I mean, it, it speaks to the immense graciousness and, of God and His love for Israel and for us in that even while we were yet sinners Messiah died for yeah. us in that the Jewish people were chosen And in the midst of unfaithfulness, not all were. And that's one of the things you've got to continue to remember. Not everybody was unfaithful. Remember, everybody gets judged by the majority. You know, the majority's actions bring judgment upon everybody. But you know, the righteous the righteous preserved it. So it's like, okay, so. And at Sinai, who else said yes? I'm sorry, if you're from Scotland, you can't say, yeah, I was there, I said yes. Chinese can't say, I said yes. Japanese, they can't say, I said yes. Americans can't say, I said yes. Protestants can't say, I said yes. Only the Jewish people said yes. Everybody else had an option. They didn't want it. Yeah. Come on. Come back. Be faithful. Same to two of them. You blew it. I'm willing to take you back. Let's do it again. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what you just said with like the proposal to different nations who declined it, and a lot of this, uh, 
tradition from the rabbis and things like that, how do we know that these things dated as far back as as, as Sinai? And like, in other words, I'm not doubting that there's a lot of that language that is in here. Actually, I wasn't. Actually, I wasn't citing the tradition. I was citing the historical fact. Nobody else said yes. Right, um, but the tradition is that it was offered to many. Sure, but um, I mean, but that's the point. That's my point. Is was there any at a time anybody coulda? There were a few that did. Ruth did. I, right. I would, Caleb did. I would argue that it is fact that it was offered. How can I say that? Because we have a tradition from Hazal from the sages that say at Sinai, God spoke in seventy words times. were spoken in all of the seventy known languages of the world at that time. As if to say, this is universally applicable and universal, universally available. Amen. That's, that's the traditional understanding that's come down from the sages. How can we look to say that that's a fact? Acts 2. <laughs> because what happened on the same... Confirms, day, the, confirms the tradition. <laughs> we... We have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and what do we do? We stand up and we begin, we begin reciting the prophecies and telling the gospel in the known languages of all the men present, right. which is a scriptural inspired confirmation of a Jewish tradition. That's right. Because the tradition was known Absolutely. by Luke and everybody else. The fact that it was written. In that way, is inexplicable unless either it happened or better. I say everybody believed it happened. Right. I think that's yeah, true. I'm not denying that. I, I was, I was it's trying to be it's actually it's a really good it's a very good question because it it goes a little bit towards what I was saying at the beginning. There, no other group has the right. It's 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 and this is I'm putting a little salt on this for you here. We we we. We have this idea. If you were to if, sit down sometime with your Bible and a Septuagint and compare. Every place that quotes the Tanakh, look it up. We're not talking scores. We're talking scores and scores of times that the writers of the apostolic scriptures misquote, add words, take words out, change words, completely changing the meaning of the verse. How do they have a right to do that? Well, traditional Christianity says they have the right to do that because God gave them the right to do that. I would say, I agree. But he didn't just give them that right. It's, it's an ex, an, I mean, it's scores of places. The scores of places where, where the writers actually read it and they don't, and they're quoting from the Tanakh and they change the words and they change the words in a way that's consistent, by the way, with Jewish thought. The way they do it is just exactly the way the rabbis do it. You know, it's exactly the way they do it. And he's like, that's not what it says. Oh, I know that's not what it says, and that's not what God amended first. But it could be understood this way. Isn't that cool? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's a remarkable way. Again, it's so hard to fit it in this box with nice, neat corners. Because, it, and, and, and theology can't fit 
in our box. It just can't. We, no matter how well we think we've got it all figured out and defined, there's going to be stuff that bleeds over. I read C.S. Lewis' Last Battle. And in Last Battle, as a kid, he's got the, he's got the pagans in, in bliss. It's like, that just isn't right. Doesn't he know there's only one way? You know, what was C.S. Lewis thinking? And, I, and I've thought about it over the time, not that I disagree with the concept still, but the idea, though, is that sometimes my nice little box, God doesn't have to fit in it. Right. And I may not comprehend all this stuff. Vastness. It is. Well, it's prideful. It is prideful. It is. It is the height of arrogance. Yeah. But I think also. I don't know if I answer your question honestly. I probably made it worse. <laughs> No, but it's, it's not that we can say it's not. But what we say is the culture is the under, is the closest we can get to the understanding of the way that it was before. In the same way, because history books are not inherently more accurate than a culture. Here's the example. Culture actually is way if, better at history. If you, if you look at, um, I mean, I'm going to potentially step on some here, so I apologize in advance, but um, if you look at the use of, or the, the interpretation rather, of the Confederate battle flag by most people, they will see it as an expression of racism and hate because and some people chose to use it that way and they reflect that back on an entire culture. But if you ask a southern... Notice he didn't say a Confederate flag. That's a different thing. Yeah. you ask a southerner what is the battle flag represent, they will say that it represents the aspirations of their people to achieve independence from a tyrannical government, which sounds awfully similar to the colonial flag. But anyway, the point being that it's two completely different interpretations sure. of the same item. Which one has the right to inter- to have the correct or at least the closest interpretation. The one that owns the object. The one that owns the object. The, 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 um, the modern person who looks back and says that flag means this, they're viewing it through their own lens, That's right. which has no history attached to it, no, no, no personal history attached to it. Now, it doesn't mean that the Southerner, because they see it through somewhat rose-colored glasses, is 100% accurate. But I can almost certainly say they're going to be closer because it's theirs. In the same way, That's right, it's their object. the Jewish culture looking back is not going to be 100% accurate. It's going to overlook some things, it's going to tweak some things, but it's going to be closest because it's there. That's right. As opposed to somebody else looking at it from their angle way over here, the Jewish angle is looking straight on. It may not be, it may be a little blurry, it's a little bit in the distance. But you look at it straight on, it's going to be a whole lot better than looking at it from a 45 degree angle. See, I could have saved an hour and a half just to have you get that. Anything else? Do you have a blessing for the czar? Were you going to say something? Well, you know, on that. When it comes to... You know, You're a southerner, right? 
fast like this. <laughs> <laughs> that's where it's fast. <laughs> <laughs> when, it comes to, when it comes to Messiah. Thank you. And, and specifically the understanding of Messiah Yeshua. One of the unique advantages that we have in the position that we're in is that if we agree with your original premise that we discussed, that the Jewish culture, culture is the only culture that has the right to infer meaning to the language, right? So we then... It doesn't mean it always gives it the right meaning, but they're the only one that had the right to do that. Right. So then that, that opens us up to the ability to, to, to consider the culture and consider what they say. But when it comes to Messiah Yeshua, we're in a unique position of being able to see... Uh, see how they've inferred meaning later to Messiah Yeshua, and we're in a unique position to be able to see past those situations that's right. where they have, that's, for that's, various that's historical the, reasons. That's the Peter's point. Yep. You know, or excuse me, I think it was Johnny's jived, point. Right? Or, or, or to Jonathan's uh, uh, point months ago, where we know they messed. With this particular text. We do. <laughs> they don't want it read this way. We know. Because we can look back with the culture, but with the messianic perspective, and see, well, why did they do that? Why did the current culture do that? Why did they choose to do that? And we can go back earlier. Well, that's not how they did it as as just to dovetail with that and then I got to I got to finish unless you guys want to keep talking after I'm done here but they the uh Isaiah 53 perfect example Isaiah 53 is like people that get all worked up and you know red in the face over no no it's talking about Messiah and trying to trying to bash Jewish people that say that's not talking about Messiah it's talking about Israel are are missing the point because the scripture says it's talking about Israel the scripture says, my servant, Israel. And then it goes on in Isaiah 53 and describes what his servant does. It is Israel. But it's Chazal. It's Jewish sages that say, it's also talking about Messiah. So the argument isn't, it's all about Messiah, it's not about Israel. No, it's about Israel. And it's also about Messiah because your own sages say it. That is totally different from trying to beat people up. You've got to understand it my way. Instead of recognizing, wait, maybe you do know better. <laughs> I need to understand it your way. Well, they need to understand it their way. Actually, actually, I think that even I need to understand it. When I read Isaiah 53, it seems so clear to me in concerning Messiah. But I do need to understand how it means Israel too. And that and that's the thing that that's the thing that maybe is a little bit troubling. We can we can grab the nuanced meaning, maybe the deeper meaning, but we got to read what it says. How does it apply to Israel? And I believe very strongly that Israel preserves the world as the righteous ones. That they are suffering for the world's sins. The greatest evidence of that is the fact that God allowed them to reject their own Messiah. Absolutely. What What Paul said, so that we... That's right. Absolutely. they are an atonement for the rest of us in that sense. No question about it. That's not atonement. We need to know what atonement is. See, we don't know what atonement is. All right. When the rabbis of old take leave of each other at the study hall of Rami, they would say to one another, you shall, see your, you shall see your world in your life, and your end shall be 
with the life of the world to come and your hope for many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding. May your mouth speak wisdom. And may your tongue bring forth song. May your eyelids look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of Torah. And may your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge and your kidneys rejoice in righteousness and your feet run to hear the words of the Ancient of Days. Amen. Amen. Sorry it was so long, guys. Okay.